I would ask for, for those who remain here with us, please open your Bibles to John chapter 11. Today we'll begin in verse 45. Tonight there are people gathering all around the world to celebrate a holiday that we call Good Friday. But what is good about Good Friday? When we gather tonight, we're actually celebrating a day of darkness. We sing about and we meditate upon a cross, an instrument of death, where the light of the world was killed. Creation itself even reacted to that magnificent and mysterious moment with darkness that covered the face of the earth in the middle of the day. What is good about Good Friday? Well, Jesus was good, sinless, blameless, righteous, perfect, light in the darkness, hope for the hopeless, rest for the restless, joy for the joyless. He says that he is the friend of the friendless and father of the fatherless. Jesus was good. He promised to give us his joy. He promised to give us his peace. He promised to give us his wisdom. Jesus was good. He's the one who brings comfort to those who are suffering and freedom to those in bondage and deliverance to those who are trapped by the evil one. He's the one who lifts up the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He is generous to the unregenerate, and he restores the wretch. He justifies the ungodly. He comforts the crushed. He vindicates victims and strengthens the weak. He is the one who gives grace to the guilty. He is good. He was the best of us. But he was treated like the worst of us, slain by death, the God of life. Today we celebrate Good Friday. What was good about that day when that good man was treated this way? Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Pilate saw no fault, yet crucified him. What is good about Good Friday? The Sanhedrin tried him. The, the soldiers scourged him. Death is what his good works had earned him. The sheep were scattered and Jesus stood alone. He was the only sinless one who had the right to throw that first stone. But he opened not his mouth. Silent he stood. And around him hypocrites accused the only man who has ever walked the earth that could be called good. What is good about Good Friday? The people joined in the chorus, and they lifted up their voices, and when given the option, they made it known what their choice is. Give us Barabbas. And what about Jesus? Crucify. 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 From every single angle, it appears as though evil has triumphed. There would not be a single day in the history of the world that is more evil so how could we possibly look at that day and say the greatest sinful act in all of history, that day is the day we call Good Friday? We begin reading in John eleven forty five 45 through 57, which says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, 
not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many of them went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you tonight to worship and to celebrate and give honor and glory to your son Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open our understanding to who he is and why he came to die. God, I ask that for everyone in the room who knows you, that we would be gloriously and radically transformed by seeing your son more clearly tonight. And I ask for everyone in the room that does not know you, that this might be an introduction to them of the goodness of Jesus Christ and the immense love that he displayed at the cross. I ask, Father, that there would be no distraction from your word this evening, whether external or internal, that we would have our hearts focused on your word and that we would be able to think carefully with our minds, but that we would also have, by your Holy Spirit, these things applied to our heart. God, we acknowledge right now that we can do nothing apart from you, and that only by the work of the Holy Spirit can we even understand what is being spoken. So God, I ask for a unique work in the heart of each person tonight that we might be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. It is in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who died, that we pray. Amen. In order to fully understand the passage that we are considering tonight, it is definitely necessary to know a little bit about the context. What was going on when these events took place? The book of John tells us about seven miracles that Jesus performed. All of the other gospel accounts include many others. But John only focuses in on seven. And of these seven, he doesn't even call them miracles. He calls these seven miracles signs. The thing about a sign is that it has a purpose. It is to point to something. Each one of these signs were revelations that Jesus truly was the Son of God. All of them were building up to the last and the greatest sign that is revealed in John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, when he died, it was well known in the community, and he had been dead for four days. Many people could attest to the fact that not only was he dead, but he had already been embalmed and wrapped up and put into a tomb where in the hot sun he waited for four days before Jesus came. And then Jesus did arrive and with great power called him out of the grave and with nothing more than a word brought him back to life. And that's where our text begins. That's where it says many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and had seen what he did, the raising of Lazarus, 
They believed in him. Many believed. They saw that resurrection power and they believed in Jesus. But some of them did not believe. And those went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 46. Those who did not believe, they they had to stop Jesus somehow. If this man can literally call people out of the grave, what can't he do? we got to get somebody on this right away. Somebody has to stop this man. So they went to the Pharisees to find a way to break this man's power. So what occurred next is a gathering of the Sanhedrin. Now these 70 men, they were powerful in Israel. They were in charge of all of the religious aspects of their society. But not only the religious aspects, they were in charge of a variety of legal aspects as well. Think of them as being not only like the papal council in Rome, but also like the Supreme Court and the House of Representatives and the Senate all kind of rolled into one. It was immense power in their community. Not to mention that they were supposed to be religious scholars and leaders, too. This was not just a conversation over a game of cards, asking, what about that guy? This was a war room session seeking to eliminate their greatest threat. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. One thing that I don't think I understood for many years is that the Pharisees seemed to actually understand that Jesus was the Messiah. I used to think that they might have just been confused or that they might have been just skeptical or misinformed. But throughout the gospel accounts, they are only presented that way one time. And that's early on in the ministry of Jesus when they had partial information. And even then, we see that they already knew that he was at least a prophet. Consider the words that are spoken by Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, who spoke to Jesus and asked him a question. Listen carefully to the way he begins their conversation. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. From the very beginning of John's gospel, that's in chapter 2, verse 2, they already know that this man is from God. In other words, they don't have enough information to know all of the details about his messiahship, but at least they know in the very early months of his ministry that he is a minister sent by God. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, they know his origin is divine. So when they hear him say, this man performs many signs, it's a way of acknowledging that Jesus really is the Messiah. It's a way of embracing the facts without embracing his authority. Yes, this man is the Messiah, but we can't have that man to rule over us. Verse 48, they say, if we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I don't know about you, but my kids do not let me do things. I let them do things because I am in charge of them. They do not let me do things because they are not in charge of me. A subject, likewise, does not permit the king to have a banquet, and a religious leader does not allow God to do whatever he wants. By saying, if we let him go on like this, they are indicating that they view themselves as being in a place higher than God himself. We know that you're sent from God, 
But we can't let you keep doing what you're doing. We know you were doing the things God sent you to do, but we cannot let you continue. Because if we let you do this, people will believe in you. It's heightened by the fact that their only concern was about their authority and their homeland being taken away from them. So we arrive at the verses here that are our primary focus of the night, starting in verse 49. Let me read that again to you. It says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Congratulations. If you're a Christian in this room today, he is talking about you. Caiaphas, this wicked high priest, was prophesying about you. Have you ever heard the saying, he spoke better than he knew? It's like this. Imagine that there is a Christian man who is on a business trip. He's gone out to California for a few days, and one day he calls his wife and he says, listen, honey, I, I know originally I was planning to stay here for a few more days, but got out of some things. I'm going to make it home. I'm leaving now, and I'm coming home. So then he boards a plane, and roughly an hour later, that plane crashes in the Rocky Mountains. Did that man go home? In a manner of speaking, being that he was a Christian, yes. Was his destination even better than the one that he planned on? Yes. Was he right? Yes. He was right, but not as he intended. He spoke better than he knew. He was technically accurate, even though he didn't understand what he was saying. He spoke better than he knew. Well, in our text today, Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. So here's how we're going to spend the rest of our time together this evening. We are going to ask the following questions. What did Caiaphas mean? And then being that the Holy Spirit prompted these words, what did God mean? And then finally, why do we call this Good Friday? Let's consider what Caiaphas meant. Caiaphas, as the leader of this group, was the kind of man that you listened to. He's the kind of man that when he speaks, everyone else shuts their mouths and listen. They pay attention. And here we see that he is a man of great arrogance by the way he starts his conversation. You know nothing at all. I don't know about you, but that's not how I usually start a conversation. Caiaphas clearly was not of the school of how to win friends and influence people, but instead he reveals that he is an arrogant man who thinks he knows what's best. And he says, you know nothing at all. And the reality is he was actually right. The people he was communicating to did not understand And he continues and says, Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Well, Caiaphas realized that Jesus was being received by the the people as a de facto ruler. Many of them wanted to set him up as their official king. We see that, for example, in John chapter 6, when Jesus had fed the 5,000, and these people were thinking, man, if this guy can just make food for us, we're never going to have to work again. So it says they wanted to make him king by force. Now, going back and looking at that, I used to think that meant they were going to try to force Jesus to be king. But I don't think that's what it means. When it says that they were going to make him king by force, it doesn't mean they thought they were going to have to convince Jesus 
It meant that they were going to have to put him into power by forcibly removing those who were already in power. They were ready to take up arms against Rome and say, no, 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 Caesar, this is our king now. They were ready to fight as soldiers in Jesus' army. Of course, Jesus refused. He was not interested in being king on their terms. We also see that The day after this meeting that takes place with the Jewish leaders here in John 11, Jesus entered the city on a donkey to chance that he was their king. You will remember we just considered that a few days ago on Palm Sunday. Rome, by the way, did not take kindly to small national startups that wanted to do something new and take a new direction with a new leader. Rome ruled with an ideology called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which basically is this. As long as you're in the Roman Empire, if you're in one of our cities, we're never going to fight each other. We're going to be friends. We will never declare war against each other because throughout the history of North Africa and the Middle East and Southern Europe, every single city took turns fighting those that were weaker around them. And the Pax Romana said, no, we're just going to get along. But that means that if anyone within those cities decides actually Rome We're not interested in doing your thing anymore. That meant that the full force of all of the other cities would come against them and quash their rebellion. So it was basically the case that if you were a Roman citizen, you never had to worry about fighting any other Roman cities unless you declared that you have a new king. Anyone who within the Roman Empire decided to rebel would be crushed with the full force of Caesar's army. So the Jewish religious leaders had kind of managed to find a little niche here within the Roman army or Roman military balance of power. The the Roman rulers basically said to the Jews, look, we don't like you. We don't like overseeing you. And the main reason we dislike overseeing you is because you have all of these rules that you follow that we don't like and we don't understand. So how are we supposed to know what kind of shellfish you eat and don't eat? How are we supposed to know what your daily routine is supposed to be like, or your ritual washings, or your temple worship. We don't care about any of that stuff. So you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up a governor, and his job is basically to oversee your Sanhedrin. And they can deal with all the religious stuff, and he will only deal with capital crimes. Now this set up a very interesting relationship with them, because it allowed the Sanhedrin to still continue with a great deal of power. They still got to have all of the things that they desired to have, except if they wanted to put someone to death, they had to get permission from the Roman governor. So you might think, hey, well, at least they're still dedicated to God, right? I mean, they just want to eke out an existence while being dominated by the Roman world. And you might think that they were still just seeking to honor the Lord while being pragmatic and trying to make a political maneuver in order to protect their people and their land and their way of life. But that's also not true. Consider how these same Jewish leaders responded when Pilate tried Jesus all the way forward in John 19. It says, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered them, We have no king but Caesar. God is not their king any longer. Do you remember back when they first clamored for a king in 1 Samuel? And God said, Hey, Samuel, don't worry. They have not rejected you as their prophet. They rejected me as their king. We have no king 
but Caesar. Caesar is our king. We bow the knee to no one but him. This tells us everything that we need to know. They were not in it for the Lord. They were not trying to defend him. They were in it for themselves. And they would say or do anything necessary to keep their power and to keep their place. So they bowed the knee to Caesar because they feared him. They did not bow the knee to Jesus because they did not fear God. Well, did Caiaphas believe that Jesus was from God? Yes. Did he believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Probably yes. But Caiaphas says, it's better for you that he, that man, should die so that this nation will not perish. Now, it's possible that there is no greater example in the entire Bible of foolish judgment than this. If you could have temporary power as a subordinate to an evil Roman government or be the servant to a good and glorious God Most High, which would you choose? Which one is better? Well, the psalmist knows the answer to that. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The doorkeeper is the guy that's the lowest on the totem pole. He doesn't even get to come inside. He has to stand out and just listen to what's happening in there. And he's like, look, it, it would be better for me to be the lowest of the lowest servant in the house of God than to dwell in the house of the wicked. Not so with Caiaphas and his friends. Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin, they had set goals for themselves. They had aspirations. And they were willing to use the name of God to seek their own gain, but whenever God's plan diverged from theirs and their self-seeking purposes, they were willing to go to extreme lengths in order to keep their treasure intact. And Caiaphas said, hey, look, you guys don't know what you're talking about, but I know what we need to do. We have to kill this guy. I've never been in a conversation like that, but I imagine that if I were to be in a conversation like that, I would pretty quickly say, you know what, guys, I need to leave. And then I would make a, a phone call, and the police would arrive, and the direction of that conversation would rapidly change. I don't think I would feel comfortable, but you know what? There's 70 guys in this room, and he says, you know what we need to do is we need to off this guy. We need to take his life. That's the only hope that we have. And everyone in the room agrees. Everyone in the room works together to plot to find a way to kill this man. But John tells us the outburst of Caiaphas was actually a divinely inspired word from God. So we know what Caiaphas meant. He meant, let's kill this man so that the Romans will get off our back. But John tells us that God had purposes in this speech as well. He had inspired the words that were spoken by Caiaphas to mean something quite different than Caiaphas meant. This little speech that he had given, well, that would actually transpire, but in a way that worked out God's providence in a shocking and completely different conclusion than Caiaphas intended. So what did God mean by this phrase? Well, simply put, using the language of this prophecy, either Jesus dies or the nation dies. And of course, John reveals to us in the same text that this chapter that is speaking about the nation is not just speaking about the boundaries and borders and bloodlines of the Jewish people exclusively, but that he is speaking about everyone that God would ever gather in from anywhere else on earth to be his people. And what God meant by this prophecy should not be too difficult to understand for the Israelites because he had already set up a sacrificial system of substitution that had been practiced for 16 centuries at this time. You kill a lamb, 
so that the people don't die for their sins. You put the sin on the animal, and it symbolically represents the fact that God is paying for your sin so that you don't have to. There's symbolic imagery that they would be very familiar with. And the most important word that I think we find here is the word for, F-O-R, for. And there's a variety of ways that we use the word for, both in English and Greek. But in this case, it is used to say, in your place. It is better that one man die for the people, in the place of the people. Now, what if you said to me, Caleb, look, I will go to the grocery store for you. That would indicate something. It means that you would go in my place. That's obvious. That's how language works. It does not mean that you would join me as we both go together to the grocery store. We would use different words for that. It means that you substitute my place. You take my role. So this prophecy is a way of highlighting two options. There are only two ways that history could play out. Either the people of God die for their own sins or Jesus dies for them. There is no third option. This is the only path forward for the redemption of God's people. This is the only avenue for the forgiveness of sins. So why do we call this Good Friday? Because by his bleeding, we are blessed. And by his death, we are delivered. And by his resurrection, we are restored. And by his wounds, we are healed. As we often sing, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. This is Good Friday because of substitution, because of what Jesus did for his people. Let me read to you a couple of verses that are familiar to you, most likely, that corroborate this information, that go along with it perfectly, hand in hand with what Caiaphas was prophesying. Consider John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is good. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. That is good. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. That is good. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is good. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. That is good. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is good. He died for his people. So now we close with two simple applications. First, I just want to speak for a moment to those who are here as friends, but not as Christians. First of all, thank you for joining us tonight. I'm really grateful that you're here. It's no accident that the Lord brought you here this evening. It was his design that you would hear the gospel tonight. 
We want you to know Jesus Christ in a saving way. Here's the question for you. Are you, like Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, only interested in your only goals, only in your own goals and pursuits? When you look at Jesus, when you see what occurred at the cross, does he repel you because he is a threat to your own personal kingdom? He says that if you want to be his disciple, then you have to pick up your cross and follow him. Just like Jesus, you've got to take up a cross too. Does that repel you? For Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, that was too much to bear. They thought that it would be better if they attempted to walk their own path. They thought it would be better if they denied Jesus and opposed Jesus and rejected Jesus. Their eyes were so short-sighted that they couldn't see that God had provided Jesus because His way is better. Caiaphas said, look, it's better that we do this. Caiaphas had no idea what was better. I know there are a lot of people in this room who are Christians. If you are not a Christian in this room, you could ask any one of the believers here and say, was your life better off without Jesus? And every single person here will emphatically tell you, I was lost, I was dead, I was empty, I was worthless and hopeless before knowing him. It is better to follow him. Caiaphas was wrong. Caiaphas and Sanhedrin did not understand. They were unwilling to lay down their sinful pride and submit to the Savior of the world. And I ask you today, are you? Will you follow after him? Will you hear what Jesus says and believe? Friends, I want you to know that God says there is something better than your way. It is better that Jesus died so that you might live. Listen, every single religion in the entire world is telling you, you've got to improve yourself. You've got to work harder so that you can look more like we want you to look and act more like we want you to act so that God might eventually be pleased with you. Clean yourself up a bit and then God will be happy with you. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches us that there is only one way to gain favor with God. And it's not through anything that you can do, but everything that he has already done. The cross is an objective picture of Christ's payment for his people. If you simply believe that he died for you, he will accept you and you will be adopted as his child. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You're called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that his death covers your sins. Believe that his blood pays your penalty. All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you're not a believer, I invite you this weekend to meditate upon the meaning of the cross. Why is it that Jesus planned to come here to die? What a wonderful thing it would be if the Lord would use this very service to gather more of his people in from, as it says in this text, from the ends of the earth, from right here in Levittown. Finally, I, I also want to speak to those of you who do know Jesus as your Savior, and I want to leave you, you with one final encouragement tonight. As we solemnly gather around the cross, we do so reverently but with joy. Earlier, we, we sang some songs, and you might have noticed they were, they were slow in their pace. They were soft in their tone. They were contemplative in their style. And it was done that way because we desire to remember reverently that Jesus really died. He died on that cross for his people. And we sing these songs and we remember together what he has done. But it's not to be sober. It is not to be 
demoralized. No, we rejoice in that cross. We celebrate, we revel in the fact that Jesus died for us. It's a time of joy because we are able to take stock of exactly what our sin cost our Savior. If you are in Christ, all of your lies and lust and pride and blasphemy and everything else you have ever done to oppose God and His kingdom, that was all laid on Him, and He paid it all. The message of the cross is that Jesus' death was not general. It was personal. He paid for the sins of His people. Our text tonight says that it was better that Christ would die for or in place of or on behalf of those he came to save. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 helps us think of it this way. It says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's the part of the verse I want you to listen to as clearly as you ever have. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. For me. Not for some general blob of humanity. If you are in Christ, he came for you. He had you running across his thoughts when he was going to that cross. He dedicated him to, himself to suffer for you, specifically. He put himself there to suffer so that you would never experience the wrath of God. He died for you. If you are in Christ, the cross is a way for you to see Jesus perfectly and personally displaying his love for you. You can say with confidence, along with Paul, he loved me. And I know this is true. I have seen the objective evidence. It is there. I know he loved me. How? Because he gave himself up for me. Now notice that this is what propelled Paul's life, and it caused him to be a subservient and obedient person in his life in regards to Christ. And he could go as far as to say, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So brothers and sisters, I call you to similarly respond. When you see that God loves you, that Christ has displayed that love for you by dying for you, let us live for him. This is good. This is Good Friday. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is an amazing thing that we can never fully comprehend why the perfect holy Son of God would willingly substitute himself for rebels, traitors, betrayers, wicked sinners like us. God, it is a shocking reality that he died for his people. Lord, I thank you that we continue to see your kingdom expand. I thank you that we continue to see more people coming from the ends of the earth to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I ask, Father, if there is anyone in the room that does not know you, that you would impact their heart tonight by your Holy Spirit, arrest them, bring them to yourself. I ask, Father God, that you would not permit them one more moment of rest in their sin before, before they bring it before you for forgiveness. And God, I pray for everyone that does know you, that we might rejoice in you, acknowledging that we have no right to come to your throne except through him. 
and that he has made the way, he has paid every debt, he has completed everything that we could never complete on our own, that he has succeeded in every way that we have failed, that he has made the way for his people. Father God, I pray that tonight, as we finish out this service and for the remainder of this weekend, we would rejoice in what you have done. And may the May the works of our hands and the words of our mouth and the style that we choose to express ourselves in for the rest of our days be a beacon that declares Jesus died for me. Therefore, I will live for him. And we pray that in the precious name of our Savior who died in our place. Amen.